Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Welcome to another exciting episode of Dose of Ether. Bijan is at the Crypto Invest Summit in our conference interview series, and we get to talk to entrepreneurs trying out new projects in the crypto space. First up is abstract tokenization, where they're automating the process of issuing security tokens specifically for the real estate sector. After that, it's Expert Dojo. Need to fund your business without an ICO? Look at traditional accelerator funding at Expert Dojo. Rootmont is offering metrics for institutional investors built on a principle of finding out how projects are built, how it's being used, how it's being traded, and the social media perception in measurable metrics. Next up is Marketing Maven, a reputation and legitimacy provider in the form of marketing. So pay these people money in order to make your project actually look like it's worth something. Next up is Token IQ, another security token offering, but it's actually built off of the Stellar platform. And they explain why they decided not to use Ethereum. And as the previous security token offering, their first deals have been shown to be in real estate. Listen up. I'm here with Abel from Abstract Tokenization. They have a product targeted to commercial real estate operations uh, for tokenizing securities and, and assets. So let's get into it, Abel. I've probably butchered that that quick, you know, five-second summary. But tell tell our listeners what Abstract Tokenization does. Well, thanks for having me, Bijan. I appreciate it. No problem. Uh, excited to be here. Abstract Tokenization is a tokenization is a service platform for commercial real estate sponsors and investors that automates all the different pieces of a security token offering. So the legal, the technical, uh, token structuring and smart contracts, uh, the operational servicing, so the ongoing life cycle of the token, we're, we're automating reporting, automating distribution processing, and making it super easy to manage your cap table. Did you forget anything? Because that, that was like a dozen different services that you <laughs> offer. I'm amazed that you can throw that off off the top of your head. The question I have is, why do you need a full service provider? Why do you need end-to-end -end service provider? Because I see companies that are doing just this, the, the tokenization or just the legal side of it. How, how are you approaching this from a full service standpoint? It's a great point. And you know, for us, end-to-end -end is extremely important when you're addressing a target market of commercial real estate sponsors. They want a one-stop shop solution. They want it to be simple and easy and familiar. And for us, you know, we want to be able to provide this 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 fully uh, full process that they can come to just one place and have it all handled, right? They they don't have in in in-house tech tech because developers. these are these are traditional real estate right. organizations, and so what? the change is hard enough to to sort of uh, adapt to, and so we need to make it as palatable as possible. Mm. And what we do, you know, our ecosystem, we have a marketplace. We're pulling in all the various providers from, you know, digital asset custody, qualified SEC qualified custodians for digital asset custody and digital wallets, uh, 
you know, the, the compliance and regulatory structuring on the, on the token side, everyone on the real estate side, there's 20 plus folks that come go into any commercial real estate deal from lease auditors to inspectors to attorneys. And uh, do you, are you the point person for all those intermediaries, those, those partners right. that you... So we're, the, we're basically the aggregator bringing all these different providers that are necessary for a successful offering into one single place and, and we're, we're putting the, the, the process together. Uh, so it flows seamlessly for and that for makes the, that makes customers. a lot of sense. And I assume you know there's probably white label kind of or white glove services out there for traditional real estate transactions um, that would help in this way. But they wouldn't do the the, the tokenization piece of it. So right. tell her why why would a commercial real estate operation, let's say it's a, a built uh, an office space with a hundred units, why would they want to tokenize their property? That's a million dollar question. So number one, liquidity. Right now only, so in 2017, 280 trillion in global real estate assets. Only 1.4 trillion of that 280 trillion was exchanged in 2017. Yeah. So less than half a percent liquidity in the largest asset class in the world, number one. Number two is access. So right now, uh, and let's just look at US commercial real estate sponsors. There's not much access to international investors, uh, much less the two billion unbanked individuals around the world. Uh, so under you know with this new structure from the Jobs Act and with blockchain technologies, now we're able to lower the investment minimum for international investors and open up this new pool of global capital uh, for the sponsors to tap into, and then also opportunities for foreign investors as well as U.S. to now invest in a piece of real estate at a lower minimum and without having to be locked up for seven years, you know nine, ten years, uh, you know which is typical with institutional quality. And is real this estate. is this where you know let's say an, inst uh, an international investor? wants is this for people who want a piece of one of those properties or to create a bundle of different you know regions that yep. they find interesting it, like and what would their alternative be would they have to buy a whole property as, yeah, a, yeah, as exactly. an international so, investor so, or, or could they get a piece or a 10 percent stake somehow uh, uh, traditionally it's a great question so our initial vision uh, for the company uh, was to democratize land ownership for everyone. Wow! And you know the idea really, was that really important for people like me in Santa Monica. You know, right? I, you know, it, it's it's in the LA SF we have this huge problem of access to to real estate and the lock-in, the the amount of inertia and momentum that people with wealth have on on the rest of the world. Right. Right they're able to retain their place. Right. right? Why shouldn't and, anyone be able to own, you know, a, a whether it's a, a condo complex in LA, a industrial building in New York, uh, you know, we want to open up this, this ability to own land for the first time ever in history by anyone in the world instead of just this And sort so of so top let's get two. into like I think many of our listeners are probably familiar with uh, tokenization of of real estate. We've talked about with a couple other companies in the space. Um, I guess, like, how would an investor really benefit from this? If they were to get a share, a really small share in a commercial real estate property in LA and they live in Kansas somewhere, mm -hmm. how do they get some of that upside? Sure. So number one is direct control. So you can specifically pick what you want. You're not being put into a you know, hundred different properties diversified and, and paying a management fee by a REIT manager or a real estate mutual fund. So now you can literally specifically pick out each one by yourself and trade and transfer those uh, you know, much more easily. Uh, so number one, and then number two, <clears throat> you're, you're able to get in at lower minimums. So it's, you're able to actually diversify yourself uh, by having access at these lower minimums and to sort of higher quality properties than you typically would have access to since we're fractionalizing the ownership down. And you know, the most important piece is the transferability without affecting the sponsor. 
the issuer of the capital, right? So mm -hmm. now there's peer-to-peer -peer liquidity that's provided that doesn't affect the, the project. If it's a development project that needs capital to build, that capital is still there and you're interchanging on a, on a, a secondary that is now facilitated by a number of folks coming up, you know, Open Finance Network, T0, uh, even you know, Binance, Bitrex, the typical exchanges are now buying ATSs and, and uh, BDs. Is there uh, is there to, like to a feedback space. loop in here somewhere where, if you are working on a development project and you sell a fifty percent stake to finance it, let's say, as you go in, there's some incidental ish expenses and issues that rise that right. you need to now get more funding. Right. If in that time period, let's say that three years that you've been doing development, you've been building a secondary market for your project, right. building a community around that, is that an additional benefit so that when you do go back to the capital markets, now you have access to capital just just organically? Right. Like yeah, from it, users who are people who are already interested in your yeah, product exactly. and already buying it. Exactly. So this year has the ability to sell some of their uh, tokens as well as the, you know, the other model we're looking at which is more the traditional commercial real estate raise model is you have several phases. So you have a construction loan phase, you have a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a, a building phase. And then, it, you know, once the assets stabilize, there, there's different levels of risk tranches. Mm -hmm. And so you can have several different offerings uh, with different uh, characteristics to each one that are specifically geared towards the, the tranche uh, or stage rather of development of the real estate. And then also there's the ability to, you know, you have an existing asset, you want to recapitalize it, you want to convert it just to uh, tokenized securities from a traditional security ownership structure. We can obviously accommodate that as well. So that's very interesting. And I know, you know, I've heard another company I was speaking with who was actually doing re redemptions. Yep. Um, and that's, that's a part that I don't really clearly understand the benefit of. But Aside from that, uh, let's talk about the minimum really quick. What what would a typical minimum like? What would a typical minimum be uh, in the traditional environment versus what what the, the yeah, new a, technology? Yeah, typical. Yeah, in the traditional environment, it's a hundred thousand plus, right? Sometimes even more. Uh, in, in the new environment, it could be as low as a thousand dollars or even less if the if the sponsor, the issuing sponsor. It's up to them. So they can decide, okay, we're going to set it at this level. There's certain costs with each investor for KYC, AML, uh, and so forth. Uh, but it's up to the sponsor. They can set it as low as $100 if they want. And this is leveraging Jobs Act regulation where That's you've right. got like Reg A, Reg D. That's and exactly the, So right. up to a certain amount, right? Once it gets past a few million dollars or whatever, they... So yeah, it, let me quickly speak to that. Yeah. So, so SEC uh, registration exemptions, Regulation uh, D, Rule 506C, basically allows for an unlimited amount of money to be raised from only accredited investors. Regulation S allows for an unlimited amount of money to be raised from accredited and non-accredited investors internationally only. And then Regulation A plus uh, allows for up to 50 million to be raised from both accredited and non-accredited globally. So that includes non-accredited in the US, uh, which is a new thing. Now, the, the only issue with Reg A plus right now is there's additional reporting requirements that can be a drag on performance. And so, you know, there is some latitude, it seems like, that, that some of that uh, will be updated by Congress, and, and, and we're hoping to see that because, you know, for us, we think Reg A plus is, is, is ideal. And we'd like to go that route, you know, as long as it's not cost prohibitive. Um, now, the, the one other thing I would say is, <clears throat> We're going to be starting probably with the Reg S combined with the Reg D 506C, uh, but it, as as the environment matures, I think there's a there's a huge opportunity. Now the other piece that is important to keep in mind is there's something called 12G reporting requirements. If yeah, you I was going to ask about investors. disclosure because how does a, a, an investor on the secondary market actually know what the quality of the project is if yeah. it's a private project? Well, exactly, and so we actually build in a lot of the property information into the token itself. We have, uh, there's quarterly reporting, and so it's actually up to the sponsor how much 
what they report. And so essentially, so the investor can gonna, make a decision right, and, based and on how much transparency what they're reporting typically to their investors. And, and there will be a lot of information out there. It's the the the, the, uh, the issuer uh, puts out on, on the on the offering and, and maintains. Right, there's there's a uh, you know property value and reports and so forth that are communicated to all the investors. <clears throat> and you know the other important thing is you know as we look at you know how do we get past a two thousand investor limit to make a market right on the secondary, you know if only two thousand people are trading, there's not much volume right. or market there. And so if you're working with transfer agents, you're now able to go up you know hundreds of thousands of investors on cap table without triggering 12G reporting How is uh, requirements that? because just the sorry just the transfer yeah. agent is on the cap table and so they're actually holding custody oh. of all the shares and so working and with so a they, qualified yeah, digital yeah. custodian along with the transfer agent and I was just having a conversation with uh, Vstock Transfer which is one of the, I think the second largest transfer agent in the world and with the chairman and CEO of Vstock Transfer and they're aggressively moving into the digital uh, transfer space which is really good news for for all these digital asset offerings and tokenized securities um, because it essentially it enables a large secondary market to grow, uh, and I think it's you know that's a key piece that's been you know, holding some stuff back. And now that you know, Computer Share also has, has expressed appetite to move into the, which wow. is the largest transfer agent in the world, to Very move cool. into the, the digital and so, transfer. And so, how should we think about you know getting in, uh, getting a, a typical commercial real estate? owner, property owner into this space, how long can they expect this process to take? What's your, what, what, what fees would be associated with it to get it done? And, you know, how do they get started? Yeah, uh, so, you know, for them, the process is actually made more efficient. It's shorter because we're bringing all the pieces together. We've got all the different due diligence folks signing off in, in, in conjunction with each other. Uh, the fees are lowered as well because a number, well, Everything from the distributed ledger technology we're using to the automated reporting, automated distribution processing, so it lowers fees, especially on the maintenance and servicing side. On uh, the upfront side, you know, the <clears throat> you know, you're opening up a new capital pool, which you know creates more demand. Uh, and you know, our fee, we're just charging a technical tokenization fee, and we're working with a, a network of distribution partners from broker dealers to folks internationally uh, for the capital raise piece. And so you know, we're charging a small, a very small uh, piece of, of the total uh, offering. And so, you know, I think the most important thing is, is the benefit of a tokenized security and of getting the liquidity. Uh, economists have quantified the cost of illiquidity at anywhere between 15 to 30% in underlying asset value, right? So, if we're so, but that is only a problem for people who need liquidity, so yeah. who, are, who are planning to get some liquidity in the next five years or so. And then secondarily, if they get in now, isn't it a problem that there aren't a bunch of offerings out there that, that investors on the secondary market can avail themselves of? Yeah, so look, I, number one, you know, th there should be a, a, a liquidity premium that is realized as, as the uh, underlying security token starts to trade. Uh, it should trade up a bit because there's an option for liquidity. Uh, number two, you know, I think it's a great point in terms of uh, the secondary market. We're, it's not just going to explode out of nowhere, right? We're just seeing the initial uh, STOs coming out of like right. Red 506 c lockups 12 months ago. They were issued 12 months ago, now starting about to be listed, right? Open Finance Network is about to be live. And the first ones are actually going to start trading. This is going to be a you know, slow process and it'll take years for the volume to start growing. And the, and the key piece for the volume to grow is, is one, what we talked about earlier, expanding beyond just the 2000 limit and not triggering reporting requirements. So now there's more of a market and more volume. But number two, institutional, you know, bringing institutional capital in. So Fidelity, 
Investments just launched their Di Fidelity Digital Asset Services, which is uh, digital asset custody and trading services for their 13,000 institutional customers. So, sir, like let me let me so let me break down the urgency for for you know potential investors and property owners in this space. Is that if you don't act now, right. you're going to if you do act now for one, you're going to benefit from from the institutional investors and other secondary market investors who do come in in the early days and are looking for opportunities, they're going to be looking at a few opportunities and yours might be one. Second, the costs um, with with onboarding when the demand has now grown might be there might, might put a strain on the, the on the market and you're available now to start this process and it might take years for for it to for you don't want to start it when you need the money right when you need access to liquidity uh, uh, for your property you need to do it years before because there's that lockup period and so on right and, and bottom line is you know if if your competitor is doing it and offering liquidity after a year and you're offering liquidity after seven years and it's the same you know, sort of property deal, investors are going to start going to the, the person offering the liquidity. That's, I mean, it's as simple as that. Yeah, and, and so with Fidelity getting in the, in, the, in the mix and these other companies just making it super easy for investors to onboard into the tokenization revolution. Yeah. New York Stock Exchange's parent company, ICE, Intercontinental yeah. Exchange. So it's coming. So, so, so we, we need to get ready. How do we yeah. find out more about abstract tokenization? Yeah, you can visit us at uh, abstract-sto.com. Uh, and you know, reach out to us there. Excellent. We look forward to buying all, all of your commercial real estate uh, tokens. All right. Thanks. <laughs>I'm here with Brian McMahon, and he is the founder of Expert Dojo, a blockchain beach-based accelerator uh, for all sorts of startups. And what we'd like to talk about today is why has it been so hard to invest in blockchain companies? Uh, great to be here. Uh, firstly, at Expert Dojo, we invest in lots of companies. Uh, we will invest in over 20 companies in the next uh, two to three months for our next accelerator cohort that will come through. So we love early stage business and we love businesses who are going through change. Uh, second point that I will add is I believe that blockchain and crypto are two of the greatest innovations that have happened possibly in my lifetime. Right? I never expected money to be disrupted. So for me, that's really cool third thing I will say is most of the investment opportunities over the last three years were a great big pile of shit. So we didn't invest in them because they're valued at four times over what they're supposed to be so that pump and dump investors can put money in, take the money out without any real regard for the entrepreneurs. And we believe in building real businesses with with, with, uh, predictable outcomes. And I I would kind of point to the internet as an example of where the hype outweighed the value and where we got buzzwords and technology driving the conversation over how what products and businesses are you actually creating and I think we suffered a lot from that where these a lot of companies in the space are leading with the fact that they're blockchain they're adding it yeah. you know public companies are adding it to their name and seeing 100% increases uh, and subsequent SEC inquiries um, because of it. So it is, is better it that this they're, year. They're, yeah, they're, it, and, and it seems like the ICO hype is gone because companies realize that in order to get access to U.S. capital investors, they need to be regular. They need to be uh, you know uh, on board with the regulations that are around the U.S. customer base. And so I guess my question is where. 
do you see the blockchain companies ignoring that they need to be focusing on if they're going to succeed in this in this industry? All those things are important. I think the attorneys got a tiny bit carried away and they saw a lot of money to be made and they jumped onto the whole, I'm going to do an ICO for a bullshit company extremely quickly and that's okay. Um, and and now that's changing, right? The, the, the attorneys are starting to realize there are some repercussions for some of the decisions they made back then. But for me, it kind of goes way deeper than that. I mean, the, the regulation will work itself out, the attorneys will work themselves out, the companies, the tax, the, whether it's a utility token or a security token, all that stuff will work itself out. My problem two years ago was that the companies themselves which is not good companies. They just were not companies. And I always use the example, is this a company that I would say to my mom, you should put $50 into because you've got a reasonable to okay chance of getting a return. And when I look at the fundamentals of a company and I realize it's a flawed product in a non-defensible marketplace with a piss poor team of 12 year olds who are building something that have got no experience in anything else other than having their diapers changed, then for me, I'm not convinced that that company should be worth $400 million or a billion dollars or five. Like, just to put it in, so, so, let me, let me yeah, put it in yeah. perspective. Sure. Google, when they were going through pre-seed, were valued at $5 million. EOS, which has done fucking nothing, is valued at $5 billion at the start, right? So, I'm sorry. Like, I mean, forgive me for like being a tiny bit weird about the whole blockchain space but look here's where it's good right now we're now seeing real companies coming through a lot of the shitty companies have been washed out uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs who felt it was just a money train which it was or the attorneys or the marketing companies are realizing now it's much more difficult and a lot of real investors who always wanted to be in there in the first place like us are now looking to invest money in blockchain companies that are making a real difference in the world, or that can make a lot of money. And the argument to date has been that, oh, these companies are focusing on layer one blockchain tech. You can't understand why it's valuable. Give it some time. We're working on scalability, security, and you've got now a 100 or a 1,000 different layer one blockchains that are trying to solve who knows what problem. But the, the argument has been we're solving technical infrastructure and you shouldn't expect there to be applications that consumers, that your grandmother is going to understand or like use. Like Google wasn't? Right. Well, no, Google, so, Google. So I'll okay. give you, so I'll make, I'll make a point. So number one, the companies that we saw coming through in 2017, like one of the 80% of companies that are already dead, like blockchain companies have set new records on how fast a company can fail. And I'm talking like even in the internet bubble in 2001, it was hard to fail as fast as blockchain companies failed in 2017. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit companies. And they weren't even just, le they weren't even level one infrastructural companies. We're talking about companies coming to me in our accelerator and saying, dude, I want to um, I want to put dating, a dating app on the blockchain. It's like, fuck off. You think I want to remember every date I've had for the last like 20 years and put it on the blockchain? Like the opposite. Right. So actually we're moving to a, I think we're moving to a place of infrastructure. And what's actually, what's, in, what's exciting is that entrepreneurs have the courage to go out there and talk to accelerators with really half-baked ideas and half-baked teams and all this. What it tells me is that there is a massive number of entrepreneurs that are getting into this space. Yes, 90% of them are on the face of it, dead on you know their companies are dead on arrival. That's fair, but we're separating the wheat from the from the chaff right now. I right? think so. And, and, Better time. And so, what are you looking at now? Are you looking at consumer products? Are you looking at big big ideas? Are you looking at 
where is it going to generate revenue today? How are you thinking about this space? I actually look at it the same way as I look at any other company. Um, I go deeper than the team. I want to see the domain expertise of the team and what abilities they have to make it through the multi-levels of actually raising money and getting to a strong company. Is it? Is it the... Are you putting the product to the test in your mind or are you actually going out there and talking to potential customers, looking at competitors and trying to understand will they have a place in the market? So the product is important, but we have to remember it's hypothetical at the start. So if we look at Messenger, when Messenger first came out, there were a thousand competitors to Messenger, but why did one Messenger product make it through and the angels and the people who were involved in that get themselves to a place where they got huge returns? Because they focused on user experience. I believe user experience is going to be tremendously important in, in whatever application making it through. Like take exchanges within uh, crypto right now. There's how many? A thousand? Two thousand? Five thousand exchanges coming through? Like which exchange is going to come through and why? You could argue the exchange that has access to the most amount of money even if they have a terrible product, even if they have a poor user experience, that money will help build them through. So look, we can't forget the access to money is going to be really important. We can't forget that the domain experience of the people is going to be tremendously important as well. And like, is it solving a real problem or is it just something that's been put in because and, somebody and part was part of the hard part is that there haven't been some of the really critical pieces that make the promise of blockchain really possible. Like um, being able to, we don't even have to go into examples, but um, entrepreneurs in this space have a really hard time solving the usability problem because customers don't have cryptocurrencies. And if you want to get them on blockchain, if you want to take credit card or something else that they're familiar with, they have to still go through 35 steps and wait a week to get their crypto kitty. For sure. So, you know, how can we rethink this from, you know, we can wait. There's 25 million supposed cryptocurrency users today. We can wait for the next 100 million to slowly adopt at their own pace. But is there another way? What I've heard at security token conferences and blockchain hackathons is crypto native. We have to go after the crypto native users. I think that's the existing user base that is already not using CryptoKitties and these other products. Yep. But going after consumers, maybe it's too early. Maybe the tooling to get it in place, maybe you need, we need those fiat onboarding systems to be seamless and the token swaps from one to another to be seamless before you'll get a successful consumer application. Further, what if we could find a way for customers to earn cryptocurrency so that they don't have to convert it from fiat? Maybe. Look, all of these things are fine. The internet was early once, right? I mean, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, it was late. And the people who were coming up with products on the internet, and we all know timing is everything. It may be that we have a great company, a great user experience, lots of money, but the timing is just wrong right now. It's a great talk by Bill Gross from Idea Labs on timing. And for me, it's more simple than that. Like we either have, we're an accelerator, right? There are 5,000 other accelerators in the US. What makes us better than any other accelerator as far as an entrepreneur making a choice to come to our accelerator and us getting the best warrior in our view for that thing? It's personal brand. Your business brand ties into a personal brand. Personal brand is what's appealing to other people. People have always been attracted to people. That's why we just saw Tim Draper walk through and he he's got like an entire a posse. posse of people. They don't even know what to say to him. They just want to be close to him so they can maybe touch him. And, and he's of no value to them, but his personal brand is strong enough that they want to get involved. So my advice to anybody in ICOs, anybody raising money is 
build a fucking personal brand that makes you value, makes you a value to people. Like, don't just go out because you got a nice white paper and you're gonna travel to 40 countries and you're gonna go to all these different places that you can do stuff. Like, go out there, build a brand, make it a strong brand, make it a value, and then people will listen. And by the way, if you don't have a brand, which most people don't because the product's not good enough and they don't really have something to say, then it's okay. Like, find something better. Right. And, and, What's the best way for people to get started with this? I know in my experience, I came from an industry that was not related to crypto at all. And I knew in order to build a company in this space, I needed to build some credibility. So I joined a, a podcast and I was able to do that by by putting myself in a position to get lucky. right? And, and what I find a lot of entrepreneurs in this space are doing is they're going up to you know, really influential, connected people and they're saying, how can I, how can I get my company funded? Instead of thinking to themselves, how is this person going to be useful to my company? Yeah. How are they going to help me serve my customers? Who are my customers? I mean, a lot of them don't start with that focus, and they're they're putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. Do you think that that is is a lot of time spent filtering through these companies, or are you still giving them guidance even if they come to you and maybe they're not ready? So we give everybody guidance. Is that guidance right or wrong? Who knows? It's our truth, right? But we give everybody guidance. Everybody should look for guidance. But I think we've just said the same thing. I'm saying build up your personal brand. Make sure that you're a value to people. Make sure that you have a level that when people are around you, they know that they're dealing with someone who's got a domain expertise or a value expertise in that particular space. It also does a secondary thing because I say like find a problem that you need to get fixed. Yeah, you find a problem you need to get fixed, but it's hard to do that if you don't know shit about the space in the first place. So the only way you can find out about it in a non-arrogant way, as opposed to just sitting in your dorm room with five friends and say, hey man, there's like a problem with the blockchain. It's like, no. Get involved, find the real problems, go deeper than level one problems, all the way down to like what do people need fixed in a way that's a huge why to them. And then once you do that, then just go out there, use the personal brand that you built, use everything you've got, and then go from there. So let's talk about um, Expert Dojo. You're, you're in you know the, the Santa Monica, Venice area of Los Angeles. How many companies do you currently uh, uh, we've got in 20 companies in the portfolio. Where how does it work? How do they how do they get involved? How do you uh, help them? They come in, we give $50,000 in cash as an investment to the beginning. Uh, we then help them find subsequent investment through investors who are all part of our network. Uh, we work with them on a slightly different level. Most accelerators teach entrepreneurs how to find investment. Like that's their URL. We believe that model is slightly antiquated and we believe in building warriors and entrepreneurs. So what does that mean? It means we focus on four core areas. We focus on mindset in an extremely strong way. We don't see any difference between starting a business and running a marathon and we focus extremely strongly on growth hacking we believe growth hacking is a central core of everything you build your business at the beginning don't bullshit around looking for investors just fucking build something that's useful we then make sure that within the entrepreneurs we have we're helping them build their personal brand we believe personal brand is the strongest currency of today and nobody else is focusing on it and then at the end we work on communication because you're gonna have to communicate with multiple different parties for the brand and the mindset and everything else that you're doing. That's it. Get them ready, get them trained, have them working together, build a strong community of those people, which is slightly more than just free beer and pizza, and then just, just send them out to war. And where can people find you and, and send uh, you their stuff? ExpertDojo.com. Uh, we're on top of the mall in Santa Monica, the sea, uh, Santa Monica Shopping Mall. We've got a big unit over there, so they can always pop in. We'll always be around. And do you uh, take you know uh, companies from outside of Los Angeles? 
Yeah, so we brought in a bunch of South Korean companies there last week. Uh, we love Israel uh, as, a, as a place. We're looking at possibly two companies from Israel that we're bringing through. Look, it's easier for, and we've also opened in Dallas, I forgot. <laughs> Sorry, Dallas. Uh, but yeah, so look, we're just looking for great people and we're, with, with the potential to be able to grow something phenomenal. All right, let's uh, check out Expert Dojo at expertdojo.com. Thanks, Brian McMahon, for being with us. You got it. Cheers, buddy. I'm here with Christopher Smith from Rootmont Research. Uh, Rootmont Research is a firm that is providing for institutional investors uh, quantitative analysis around different token projects and how you can really be a better and more informed investor. And so while there probably aren't too many in institutional investors on this podcast, we'd like to share with you some, some of the ways that the more sophisticated uh, in investment firms with teams of people that are doing research, how they're actually looking into these projects and some tips and tricks to, to improving your own um, uh, success, I guess, in investing. If you're informed with, with uh, the right knowledge, you're going to do much better. So, Christopher, let's talk um, high level. What does Rootmont Research do? So basically what we do is we, we do deep quantitative analysis on cryptocurrencies. So we look at many data sources for every currency in our catalog, there's over 400 now, and, uh, and, and we do a bunch of data science on it to drive, uh, to derive important metrics and then put this in a nice beautiful report, kind of collate it and rank the currencies against each other in these different categories. And basically we, we, we're not, we think of ourselves as objective sensors sensors like this instead of like a microphone right. or, a, or a, you know, a camera. And so we just want to show people this is what's going on. You don't have to go collect the data yourself. You still have to make your own decision about what to do with it and what's important and what's not. But we uh, we, we go through the hard work of calculating all this this stuff. Yeah, and that's, that's really cool. I think, um, like, for example, Masari is trying to take a different approach to this problem mm -hmm. where they're looking at investors in cryptocurrencies need to be informed so they start with the same premise right but their solution is we're gonna find we're gonna coordinate all of the people in the industry to self-disclose subjective attributes of their company like where development money has well it's not subjective but it's maybe not public knowledge right to disclose that willingly mm -hmm. so that they can their investors can be informed and they can stay out of the SEC's eyes. Right, and your approach is rather than trying to figure out the subjective notions around what a company should be valued and whether it's right or wrong, you're looking at what are the actual metrics of their token? Right. What is their long-term what is the long-term outlook from a purely quantitative uh, standpoint? So what are the different inputs that you're using for your you know, world sensor of ICO or token data. Well, yeah. So, so just to clarify, I mean, all, all our uh, all the coins in our catalog are already on secondary markets because otherwise it's a bit hard to get uh, data on them. Right. Uh, so, so Masari, where their focus is on the the pre-launch kind of due diligence. That's right. We're you're looking at post-launch. How do you value the company today? Right, and we, we have uh, dozens of metrics that we collect, and then we organize them into, we really feel like there's four layers to a cryptocurrency uh, project, and one is how is that being built, 
And so that's looking at, you know, most of these projects are open source, so you can go see what is the engineering team doing. Even if you don't know how to code, you can still use your brain and look at the conversations that are going on there, look at how active they are, and make a judgment call. Are they really building something? Are they working hard? Is this like a, you know, garage project? What's going on here? And, and so just to break that down a little bit, you know, we talked about pre-token companies and post-token uh -huh. companies, but there is a there is a difference between the token and the business, right? Absolutely. Because you can have a token without any product whatsoever. That's and right. And so you're recommending that people look at the GitHub or that you'll do that for your customers. Right. So that, that, but you'll see how active are they on GitHub? How big is their developer? If it's an open source project, how big is their developer network? And are you looking at the actual things of what they're contributing? If it has end user value or not? Well, there's there's a certain the the more it moves into the subjective realm, the harder it is to automate. So then, you know, so you're looking more at like lines of code yeah. versus you know if that feature is good. Right. It'll be like lines of code. Uh, you know, number of like issues or number of forks. Uh, okay. How many how many uh, stars are on it? Uh, and and so it's you know it, it's really looking at engagement and like activity right it's from a high level view it's you know we don't we don't parse the code and like right. try to see if it runs or if it passes the test you know so so and and you're trying to do this in a way that you can standardize it across projects right exactly. so these metrics so one so that's one aspect so let's talk through the other the, the, right. the whole suite of so yeah, so we so we say that you know the sort of the foundation is what's being built, and then there's another layer which is how is it being used. So you know the blockchains in general are public, and so you can actually see real world transactions uh, and and use that as a proxy for a number of users, and then you can start to look at how is that relating to the price movement, and that starts to tell you know some people say that cryptocurrencies don't have fundamentals, you know, and, and we disagree. We think that, that the real world usage is the fundamentals. It's like, it's basically the business behind the coin. Right, and that's like where Fundstrat, uh, Global Strategy Advisors, or whatever that company is, they had a, uh, a metric that really just relied on looking at Bitcoin transactions and number of addresses, and they were to, able to predict with like 97% accuracy yep. the movement of Bitcoin, but they also predicted it would hit 25,000 by the end of the year. So. Are, are you triangulating on a direction for a project when you're looking at these various sources and saying maybe not any one of them is useful on its own, mm. but taken as a whole, we can we can kind of see the direction this project's moving? Yeah, I think it's it's really about, you know, I mean, it, there's so many things that have to go right in order for a project to succeed, you know? And, you know, it could be something that goes wrong with they can't do the marketing or, the, you know, they have engineering issues or they can't get people to use it, you know? So there's, we really try to look at all these pieces and let people judge for themselves what is the right approach. You know, but like we talk about Fundstrat, I mean that that ninety something percent correlation that's gone now for Bitcoin. Now there's still really high correlations for other coins, and maybe you have to adjust the exponent to find the best fit and things like that. But you, uh, you know, we think that that, you know. For, in the case of Bitcoin, it hit a maximum transaction, a daily transaction, and this was sort of an artificial bottleneck. But uh, what it did is it caused the price to diverge from real-world usage, um, and so and that's a really interesting. Wow. You know. And you think that parity is broken forever well, with Bitcoin? Like, what what makes that true then? But now that the you know six hundred thousand transaction limit or whatever per day is no, mm. we're nowhere near that. Are we seeing the correlation? get back to what it was? It's come back somewhat, but th there's also this aspect of like, you know, 
people are using Bitcoin proper less and less. And I think it was it, there was uh, a kind of disappointment in the market. There was ex exuberance, and then the fees were so super high, and a lot of the merchants dropped them. And it, it you know, so I think that somebody else is going to be is going to nail the UX and the scalability issues. And I don't think it's going to be Bitcoin. Interesting. Um, wow. And and it's a little disappointing to me because I you know I love Bitcoin. I you know I, I started out researching Bitcoin and just became obsessed with it. And uh, so so, but you know what really matters at the end of the day is that people are using it, right? And and um, and so that's like Metcalf's law is this way of and they call it a law, but it's it's a way of valuing networks and you really value them by the number of edges not according to the number of nodes in it. and so the number of edges increases quadratically with the number of users so it's like if I have a telephone and then you have a telephone and that's the only telephones that exist there's only one connection but then we add someone else has a telephone now there's two more connections and then the 500th person there's 500 new connections right, right and so once you get to a critical mass now your platform is actually valuable to the to each user, right? Whereas until you hit that level, it's not valuable to anyone. Yeah, there's there's definitely a kind of chicken in the egg thing. It's I mean, it's amazing that Bitcoin went from zero to one, right? right. Um, and and there's really you know, some people have said, oh, you know, you shouldn't have sold or you shouldn't have spent it. But I think this is the wrong way to think about it. I mean. Uh, you know, every transaction that you make with crypto, somebody's accepting it, and that person is somebody that's now more aware of it, and and uh, and is sort of like another user. That's a, so. So we've got the team and their their productivity on the code level, their GitHub and, and their interactions with their community. Right. We've got the actual users. That's right. Of the platform. What else is important? Well, so we also look at um, how it's being traded. And so it's not just the price, it's not just the trading volume. We also look at uh, a bunch of portfolio statistics. So this is stuff that like, you know, fund managers who are, they're really trying to hedge their risk, right? They, they don't care. It's not just about how much does it go up or down, it's the volatility and and different ways of measuring that. So it's, you know, how, how lucky do you have to get to actually take advantage of those gains? And, uh, and so, so we, we, we take a bunch of these things. You know, another really interesting thing to look into is this upside and downside capture ratio. So it's like when the market is moving in a certain direction, how how much does the individual coin move? Does it go with it? Does it kind of stay behind? Does it jump ahead? Oh, interesting. Right, and and then you can also take ratios of these things versus like, you know, how well does it do in a bull market versus a bear market? That's and, it. and you're constantly keeping this up to date, so when the personality of the project changes, mm -hmm. your report for that project will change in line. Absolutely, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, we should use that, personality <laughs> project. So, so yeah, and then speaking of personality, one of the, the next, the last layer is how is it perceived in social media? And so that that you know we, we take a bunch of social media and metrics. that's huge in particular for crypto because of how speculatively yeah. it's driven and how little the dearth of actual useful information there is about these projects. It's right? true. It's true. And that's that's part of the that's the gap in the market that we're trying to fill with our service um, because because yeah you know I mean there's a lot of like you know interesting funny just like likable people uh, on social media that are talking about you know this or that and and some people are giving good information and some people are just shilling and so uh, do you actually use your uh, use sentiment analysis to understand you know who may be a shill and who may be an actual you like an informed contributor like how do you differentiate between fudsters Mooners, hodlers, <laughs> shills, and right. all of the uh, all of the other categories of of 
people on Twitter, you know, that, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, and we don't, you know, currently we have sort of our first, first approximation of, you know, and we do intend to, to get sentiment analysis and do more machine learning things in that, in that direction. But really the way you would distinguish what we think is the most important thing is, is, is you can look at, we have social scores and then we have usage scores and, and we can compare those and we can say like, you can get an estimate of, like we have this, uh, you know, for example, we have this this uh, metric we call it the hype metric, and it's one of it's derived from social media scores, social media activity, and then we divide it by the log of the market cap. So basically, saying how much does the the the, the buzz exceed the actual trading, right? And of course, the trading can exceed the actual usage, and the usage could actually you know be based on like a project that's not being developed at all. So, it's, so you have all these layers inter interact independently, and uh, but they're all important. And when you're designing these metrics, this is all very fascinating, so thanks for, for sharing. How do you know, because ultimately you can't improve what you don't measure, so measurement is important, but knowing what to measure is, is even potentially more important, right? So you have a hype metric, you have MACDs, you have Metcalf's Law, you've got all of these great things, you right. know, 90 MA, 30 MA, 300, 200. How, how am I gonna use that um, if, if it's based on objective data, but it's just a derivative metric of something else, like how do, how do you know that you're actually signal on this metric and not just another, another kind of noise? Well, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's a it kind of a subtle question because I mean, you know what you said about like knowing which things to measure. I mean, this is the art and science, right? It's sort of like you could measure anything, but like you have to form a hypothesis. And, and so we, we really, you know, for a certain clarity of mind and and also legal purposes, we don't want to tell people what to buy, and we don't want to tell people which of these things is more important than the other one. We do provide an API for, for example, for traders to, uh, you know, if they have their own algorithms that they want to apply to it, and they just want to use this as a data feed, um, because you know when it comes down to it, nobody really knows what the future holds, and you know anybody who tells you otherwise is lying. And I think what what the way that I see this is that. Rootmont research is creating like a layer, a level of abstraction from the raw data mm. in a way that is not accessible to institutional investors and traders who would have to really process that, parse it, and understand it themselves, right? Maybe come up with their own metrics. Instead, they can use that still, but they can supplement it with researched, quantitative, and novel metrics that, that actually give you. Um, signals about how the project is moving without without just like these very ambiguous terms like how many users they have how many telegrams yeah. people they have like if you can get a hype metric and compare that with you know compare their social media presence with actual transaction volumes and come up with a score around that that seems very very helpful for a trader who's looking at hundreds of projects right. and needs to just get the the high level overview really quickly Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we we, uh, we say that you can think of us as an outsourced data science team, and and so you know we 
we're nerds about this stuff. We went, we were doing this for ourselves, and we realized, hey, probably other people are interested in it too. I, I, I'm interested. I don't have the money to afford your products, I'm sure, but you sell them as individual reports per per token, and also as a membership, uh, and targeted primarily to institutional investors. But anyone can go in there and grab a a, a copy of one of the reports for your favorite token, uh, and learn more about whether you should sell, hold, or um, or, or buy more for that matter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, you know, I'll be happy to give you a, a trial. It's, yeah, uh, thanks so much. Yeah. We're very proud of our product. Good chatting with you, Christopher. Thanks. Thank you very much. I'm here with Lindsay Carnett, the CEO and president of Marketing Maven. I was just chatting with her a little bit, and I'm really excited to share with you uh, what Marketing Maven does and how marketing can help crypto companies. I mean, it sounds like a crazy idea, right? Marketing for a blockchain company? Crazy. So tell us, Lindsay, why why would anyone be a customer of Marketing Maven? I think the biggest thing is for reputation and for building cred credibility because this industry takes a big beating from mainstream media and it's important to explain to people why you're a legit company and why people should want to work with you. So most of the companies when I'm going online and I'm researching crypto, I see Facebook has banned crypto advertising, JP Morgan thinks Bitcoin is dead, ICOs are scamming everybody, crypto exchanges are, exit, are exiting with people's money. But this is supposed to be the trustless environment where you don't have to trust anyone to get the job done it's kind of a, an interesting problem how do you communicate trust in an industry that where trust is supposed to be implied but it's actually never really there like you end up trusting these centralized providers in the end anyway so how do you come at this problem from a marketing angle well I think with any change uh, there's always fear associated so if you think of just even the cannabis industry and laws being passed here and there um, we, unfortunately, we are dealing with a lot of really big players like banks, uh, huge financial institutions, and it's almost like supplements dealing in, with the pharma companies because the pharma companies have so much money, they're trying to keep the wall really, really high so then you can't, you can't break through. So in this sort of industry, it's important to get the word out there that what you're doing is credible um, and explain all of the positive practices that you've put into place as a company. And so are you advising startups that are in the blockchain space and are trying to get consumer adoption or are you helping them message to investors? Both. Oh, okay. Yeah, on both sides. So what we're doing in the investment community is dealing with large media like Bloomberg, Reuters, um, and having them explain what sort of technology exists in this space, um, for example, one of our clients, Crypto Exchange Ranks, has this uh, ranking system that shows how hackable certain tokens are. So we're able to capitalize on certain news trends which are negative and then turn them into a positive. Wow. So if some there was some sort of big breach or you know something collapsed or there's some big scandal that happened, we want to know about it research why that happened and then have a solution to have that not happen to your token. Hmm. And, you know, as a product targeted to people who are not cryptocurrency users, do you help, 
you know, blockchain startups figure out the right way to approach their messaging so that they don't have to teach their customers about blockchain and all this crazy technology. Like, I don't know what database software any company that I use is running. Blockchain is really just a database in a way. So why are all these companies leading with, we're the blockchain decentralized web 3.0 distributed application revolution product for the future, and I can't figure out what the hell they're selling. Yeah, I think people are people in this space, companies in this space are having a tough time with messaging because I think you have to simplify things. And um, what we do is look and scour the internet, of, like listening to conversations and where there are certain terms being used, um, who's using those terms, and we separate these into different buckets. So one is in forums, one is in news, one is in social media, and another one is in blogs. So we're looking at who are key influencers, what are they saying, um, what are the sentiments associated with it, is it positive, negative, neutral, and that sort of intelligence can help a company develop their messaging um, to find what is their point of differentiation. Right, so you can actually design the message and the collateral yes. to be based on the terminology that the users are already engaging with, yeah. right? Yep. So if they refer to it as a hub instead of yes. a node, yes. then you might want to use that terminology Correct. with your customer base, because yep. that's what they're already resonating and responding yeah, to. Yeah, and that can be um, from web copy to social media content to um, pitch content and so for press. so how many coins does it take to engage you with, for your services? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it's on a... Come, uh, as, on a uh, per case basis <laughs> so but but really how does pricing work do do I as a business owner trying to get better marketing um, for my website copy let's yeah. say do I go, is it an hourly thing yeah. is it a project based yeah uh, we can payment? get paid on a um, on an hourly basis and on a project basis so and and you know why aren't more crypto companies using marketing firms and, and marketing talent to really help bridge the gap between the customer and the product that they're offering? I'm not really sure. It might be because a lot of people in this space are from the technology background or a lot of people are from the finance background. And um, I'm not sure what the answer is. Or maybe they feel like, okay, well, there's a disconnect between marketing and the development side. And the marketers might not know how to explain it, but yeah, and, and kind of, I, I'm seeing a lot of the same thing that a lot of companies came out with really deeply technical products. They got amazing amounts of funding, and then when they released, they, you know, like Augur, great product. They released, they have almost no users. Crypto right. Kitties now, they did great, but now they still almost have no users. Yeah. And this communication to the layman, the consumer, person who's never heard of blockchain. That seems like a critical piece that people are missing, and now the focus has to be on, right? Yep. When you've got $100 million and no customers, <laughs> you're gonna- That's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem, right? <laughs> so getting a marketing firm to help hone your message to figure out what's the right way to communicate to your customers so yep. that they respond in the way that you're exactly. looking for, right? Yeah, we're essentially translators. We can translate the really sophisticated Nerd technology speak into yeah. layman speak. Correct. Yeah, and we're doing that with a lot of different industries and we've had a lot of success in really highly complicated industries, really turning that complicated messaging into layman's terms. That's that's really great, Lindsay. So tell me what are the range of services that you offer? Sure, so we're focused on we started nine years ago doing just traditional media relations, so PR meaning 
TV, radio, newspaper, magazine, and online. And this is really focused on what's newsworthy. So if you have um, something that's timely, local, quirky, hard news, we put together a pitch, we pitch it out to the media. There is no money exchange. It's purely editorial coverage, and that is great for building third-party credibility. Um, we're also doing social media marketing, and this is on a variety of social platforms. This also includes customer service, too, via social media, um, influencer marketing, and then creative services. Awesome. So you'll do design, copy, end-to-end, yep. yep. and you have a team that, that helps do that. Exactly. Excellent. So everybody's specialized in their certain area. Very cool. Well, it's a much-needed service. Definitely crypto companies. You need better marketing. That's <laughs> just coming from a user. I can't use half of your products. I've tried. I've tried them all. Trust me. It's really hard. Talk to Lindsay. She's going to help you out. Um, where can we find out more about Marketing Maven? Uh, it's really easy. Marketingmaven.com. And that's M-A-V like Victor, E-N.com. All right. Marketingmaven.com. I look forward to seeing the vastly improved websites of these <laughs> companies and their, their really hard to understand products. Me too. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. All right, I'm here with Mark Vange, CEO and founder of Token IQ, the company that's going to unseat any challengers like Polymath and other frenemies of the company. But uh, really, I'd love to hear from the founder exactly what you guys do. So why don't you intro your product? Absolutely, thank you. Um, we focus on the tokenization of securities. Our goal is to make uh, security tokens that are fully compliant and solve some of the key and disconnects between the crypto world and the securities world. Um, and, so, and so you don't do ICOs? We don't do ICOs. Uh, we generally don't touch anything that could be thought of as a utility token. You know, our premise is um, we need to embrace the fact that a lot of these things are actually securities and uh, kind of recognize that that actually is very liberating. You know, and, and people tell me that, you know, that there's no clarity around the rules and laws, I actually kind of scoff at that because these things are securities, their securities laws, and lots of people know how to use them and interpret them, and that's kind of what we power. And furthermore, given that these are security laws in the U.S., and the U.S. has some of the biggest capital markets in the world, you would think companies that were interested in having a long-term sustainable business would want to be in the U.S. market. Absolutely. Between the U.S. and Europe, we've done some research between, like, depending on how you count, between 60 and 87 percent of all of the investable capital in the world. Wow. So if you don't sell to investors in those markets, you're just selling yourself short. And one thing that I learned recently at the Security Token Conference, um, uh, just just last week, is that there is a lot. There are a lot of opportunities for companies to raise with retail investors in the current, um, uh, in, with the current regulations as they are. Can you talk about Reg A, Reg D? How much this allows a, a retail investor or a company to to fundraise from retail investors? What the differences are, and why we might go with those routes versus accredited investors. Sure, absolutely. So I'll start with the fact that I'm not a lawyer. I'm a technologist. So you know, check all this stuff with your lawyer before you you know pull the trigger on it. But um, fundamentally. There are, um, you know, there's kind of a path of ever-increasing opportunities that come along with ever-increasing costs of compliance. And so for any given company, depending on how much you're trying to raise and what stage of the business you're at, one makes sense, may make sense over the other. Um, even for uh, investments, though, that require qualification, right, there's kind of this disconnect uh, in the sense that the amount of work involved in qualifying each investor is pretty high. We did some research mm -hmm. and it suggests that 
for every investor, there's like four hours of office work, there's like four internal emails, four external emails, three phone calls, right? You're paying a lawyer 500 bucks an hour to do all this stuff. So the minimum size check you can take is 50,000 or 100,000, right? There's a lot of qualified investors in the US, millions of them, you know, doctors and lawyers and accountants and people who would be qualified under SEC, so they have you know, in excess of a million dollars in assets, excluding the primary home, they make more than 250,000 a year, but they still can't write a $100,000 check necessarily, right? So by kind of optimizing the process and by making it a lot easier for companies to issue these tokens and comply and do the vetting and so on, you can actually open yourself up to investment for a much larger pool of even qualified investors. And so how much do you reduce the processing time for an investor to onboard into the cap table for a company? Yeah, so, and so a part of what we've done is we've completely recreated the, the process online. So all the forms, all of the disclosure stuff, all of the contract So it's fully self-service. Fully self-service. So, you know, the issuer still needs to vet, but we even connect with kind of the and information systems that you know banks and credit cards use to do things like income validation and job validation. So even when people assert that they're qualified, right, it's not enough from the SEC perspective if people just check the boxes. Issuers actually are responsible to vet the stuff and to even help with that vetting process. And so what is your differentiator to a startup like Polymath or or an organiz like a, a, a traditional financial organization that might be coming into this space? So those are two very yeah, different yeah. competitors. So from someone like Polymath, and I mean, I love the guys over there. Trevor and I know each other quite well. I mean, they're great guys. They're based on Ethereum. They're trying to uh, build this ecosystem up on Ethereum, which from my perspective is actually the wrong place to be. Uh, and, you know, and we'll talk more we'll talk about, about, about that, yeah. Um, but you know, um, we just focus on very simple you know, kind of one thing, which is securities. We issue them on Stellar because we don't think that securities require smart contracts. And then we bridge to Ethereum if a particular issuer does require cross-functionality with smart contracts. Interesting. But you don't need a smart contract to actually affect the transaction. And so what about the organizations who maybe are not crypto-native but have all of the customers sure. and, and those relationships and, and maybe already relationships with the SEC and are licensed and all this stuff? So for those guys, right, all they understand is the securities laws. And so we make these uh, tokens look as much as possible like securities. In fact, uh, for our own offering, what we are, what we're doing is we're issuing two parallel classes. One is on paper, and one is in tokens. And you can move back and forth between them. So if you are, you know, a pension fund, if you are um, a, an investor who, by charter, is restricted to certain types of investments, you can buy the paper and have the option in the future, once you get yourself together, to transition to tokens. Conversely, if you want to be cool, you want to buy tokens, but you still want the security blanket of being able to move back to paper, you can do that as well. And are there any centralized systems in here that maintain ledgers and, and do anything? Like, could, could I, as a user, independently verify that I have ownership of these security tokens and independently transfer them without um, a, like crazy overhead from centralized services? Or how, sure. how does that part work? So, one of the key differentiators for us from all of our frenemies, as I like to call them, is, and this is kind of, you know, anti kind of crypto purist, is that the company actually still owns management of this, the float of shares or the float of securities, right? So ultimately, the company is responsible for what happens with their shares and the company is the one that can manage it. So if I get hit by a bus tomorrow and my kids and my wife inherit my tokens, per 
or her representative can contact the company and say, hey, Mark, Mark was hit by a bus, you know, here's the legal form from the court that says that you know, his wife now owns those tokens, here's her wallet transfer. And is the benefit here that we're eliminating a lot of the intermediaries that would have to be in the chain of custody from transferring from one person to another? Absolutely. We're, we're eliminating all of the overhead, we're making the transactions much faster, and we're allowing for much smaller transactions, much more budgeted transactions. And w yeah, where do you see the biggest asset class that's going to be impacted by security tokens? Um, I mean, ultimately, I don't know what the biggest will be, but the first one is clearly real estate. Our first deal is a real estate deal, where the first kind of real STO announced was actually a real estate deal as well. Is there an opportunity for homeowners to get some liquidity from their homes without refinancing through a security token offering? I mean, I would argue it is a refinancing. It's just a matter of where you go to do that financing, right? So the, the, the first deal we're doing, it's a company called Oxygen Hospitality. They are a very cool high-tech operator and builder of hotels. So they want to be equally high-tech in the way that they raised and funded this thing. And uh, you know, if you look at it, it's basically, it's a note, right? It's no different than a mortgage, if you will, but it's not to a bank, it's to a bunch of investors who loan them money and they pay them interest every month and all that stuff. And we transact all of that through Stellar, so no one's sending checks, no one's having to go cash anything at the bank, right? It's all happening smoothly, and it is no different than a mortgage, just different in size. Very cool, very cool. And I think for real estate, I would 100% agree because it's the biggest asset class in the world at $240 trillion, and it's also the least liquid. It, it maybe it can, uh, maybe not literally, but in it's terms of it's up there, right? And, and I, I think it also is an interesting use case because you know when you tokenize a high tech company, which let's say in itself is very speculative, right? You kind of have that blowback that the company is speculative, the mechanism is speculative. There's just too much going on. Mm. Whereas real estate is well understood; it's a traditional business. Everybody understands that this piece of land has inherent value. So you can be a little bit more flexible with how you deliver the tokenization or the securitization of it. Yeah, and what fascinates me about security tokens is that they are they are more familiar. We don't have to sell cryptocurrency and blockchain and explain how that works to help people understand that they're going to get more liquidity, faster transfers, and less overhead, less fees with the security token model. So let's get into what I'm sure is the burning question on all of our listeners' ear uh, minds right now is why Stellar? Why the hell would you pick Stellar over our baby Ethereum? <laughs> um, okay. Ethereum is a fantastic platform. Smart contracts can do a lot of great things, right? But they also increase the complexity, they increase the attack surface, right? It's easier to get stuff wrong, and the transaction rate is much lower. The total cost of doing a transaction is much higher. Even if you take apart you know, the actual cost of Ethereum and how much gas is involved, just fundamentally the cost of the energy required to do the transaction each time is much, much higher. And do you not see, is it a timing issue? Be, or do you not see it feasible that, that Ethereum developers will solve these scalability issues? So, and, and frankly, the usability and, and development tool, tooling around it. So look, fundamentally, it's always going to take more energy to perform an Ethereum transaction. Why does the energy matter if relative to the traditional banking institutions, it takes maybe less energy? If you consider the number of intermediaries that you're that you're kicking out of the sure. process, but aren't not, we saving energy? But you're not asking me to compare Ethereum to traditional I'm just paper. asking why, why is energy Ethereum. relevant to well, your service? Because fundamentally, energy is cost. Right? If I can do it for less energy on Stellar, it will always fundamentally be cheaper. So if Ethereum is cheaper in the future, will you switch? 
Sure. If, if someone can produce uh, you know, some version of Ethereum that can do hundreds of thousands or millions of transactions per second and not have a huge overhead associated with it, absolutely. And so the, the thing I would push back on is the attack surface thing. Now, I would agree developing smart contracts, especially if you want to formally verify, audit the code, very, very challenging stuff to do with a simpler programming language and system maybe perhaps like Stellar, that might be easier. What I think would be more risky is the attack surface of the layer one blockchain itself. Because if Stellar holds, let's say, 90% of the tokens, and I, I don't know exactly what their token distribution is, but presumably it's not as de, quote unquote decentralized or distributed as a platform like Ethereum. And so in the future, if they don't get, let's say, deep network effects, a 51% attack might be possible. Or um, if, if Stellar's funds are stolen, then somebody could attack your distributed, your DAP, right? Okay, so um, I, I don't at all claim to be like the, the expert on the lower kind of functioning of either Ethereum or Stellar. Um, Stellar is a very different kind of network. Um, so it does, you know, it has no mining, it has no 51% attack per se, right? It's a quite a different mechanism. And so um, I, I don't... You're right, yeah, it's, it, because it doesn't have an open set of nodes that can operate on it. It's really just the question of will the Stellar Foundation, who owns most of the tokens, always be a, a benevolent dictator? Uh, well, again, there, there's more and more uh, kind of participant nodes that are not owned by the foundation, but um, I don't really perceive that as a, let's say, a fundamental risk either in Ethereum or in Stellar. You know, if it's a, if it's a very narrowly adopted chain or ledger, of course, that becomes much more of an issue. Um, I'm not really comparing them on that level. For me, it's just a matter of, you know, the frequency and volume of transactions. Being able to get the job done. And because in Ethereum, I would agree, if you guys are trying to scale a security token offering, you've got billions of shares for a single product you're going to have a lot of issues um, with the scalability with Ethereum today. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And I should mention, you know, for some issuers that we're talking to that do require a smart contract, you do bridge across to Ethereum and actually execute that stuff on Ethereum. I got you. Okay, cool. That's good to know. So where can we learn more about Token IQ, our listeners, and um, what are you guys looking for? So uh, you can find us at tokeniq.io. Uh, so that's really simple. Um, we are definitely looking for folks who are interested in um, issuing um, tokens. You know, folks who are fundraising, who perhaps are looking at um, more traditional fundraises. What stage fundraising do you think is most applicable? Are Are you looking for companies that are that have been rejected from Sand Hill Road VCs, or are you looking for people that are in you know emerging markets that are trying to sell security token? So. The reality is, if you're trying to raise $100,000 or $200,000 and it's your seed round, you're better off going to grandma and asking her if she'll write your check because the overhead associated with any kind of fundraising is too high for you, right? If you already have a little bit of money in the bank and you can now you know, afford to actually undertake a real fundraising round, so maybe you've raised a million and now you're going for $5 million, that's really the sweet spot for starting to think about Reg D or you know, going to $10 million, $15 million, or Reg A, Awesome. Thanks so much, Mark, for joining us. And that was Token IQ, tokeniq.io. Check them out. Thanks for joining us on this weekly dose of Ether. Uh, we'd like to thank a Bitcoin Podcast Network for hosting this. Uh, sorry if there were a few audio issues through the Crypto Invest Summit uh, recordings that we did. We're going to improve this over time. Uh, thanks for bearing with us. But we hope you enjoyed or took out from it 
some learnings and what you could. Uh, and we look forward to our regular schedule of Dose of Ether for next week. <laughs>